Welcome to Talking History with Farnham U3A History Group. Our speaker is Richard Thomas, who is talking about the Boer War and other colonial adventures. Part C. The points I mentioned in the last meeting, Pakenham's book on the Boer War is just amazing. It's brilliant. I do think I got mine, my, my second copy at an Oxfam shop, so it's sort of thing you might find in places like Farnham, not everywhere. Uh, but it is a simply brilliant book. And, and the lady over there, I should have waved at it earlier, has bought this book of the Boer War written by one of the officers that was there. Fantastic picture, so do have a look at it during, at the end of the session. So, other colonial adventures. These are all from the period around the, uh, the Boer War, and they're also, I think I'm talking only about British adventures, because there are so many other adventures and so many other colonialists that it could be another talk on the French, another talk on the Germans, another talk on the Portuguese, so it could take a very long time. But these were all around the period of the scramble for Africa. I'm going to talk a bit about the, uh, the early Ashanti Wars and the fourth and fifth Ashanti Wars, the Anglo-Zanzibari War, the Anglo-Benin War, because these are examples of the British gradually taking over as part of the scramble. It wasn't random. The British didn't really want to take over all of this, but the part of the scramble for Africa was if they didn't, the French would. <laughs> so the first one in this sequence is the fourth Ashanti War. The, the final one is the fifth Ashanti War. And the fifth one ensured that Ashanti, which is now part of Ghana, was a colony rather than a protectorate. The fifth one was another extremely unnecessary war. But we need to start, really, with uh, the, why, why were there five Ashanti wars? Now, the Ashanti were a major ethnic group, are a major ethnic group, in the middle of Ghana, in the middle of a populated area of Ghana. This is pretty, pretty deserty up here. They're an Ash Akan group, and they were a major kingdom in the interior of the Gold Coast, now Ghana. They wanted to control and did control the coast and the trade, including the slave trade, uh, but other groups lived on the coast, the Gar and the Fanti, and they were less keen on Ashanti control, and they wanted British protection to survive and prosper. So the first two wars made the British realize that the Ashanti, with a well-trained army of 20,000 people, was not going to roll over and allow itself to be tickled. There were lots of skirmishes which were expensive for both sides, particularly the British. Once again, the main enemy was the Mosquito, not the, gun, the gunfire of the Ashanti. Many, many more people died of malaria and yellow fever than died in battle. Now, the third, so that's the first two. The third Ashanti War in 1873 is the real prelude to the story. This made Garnet Woolsey famous. Partly, he did run a very good campaign with relatively minor losses, more from malaria than from fighting, mainly because it was... Uh, well reported by Western journalists, including Henry Morton Stanley and G.A. Henty, two names to conjure with. Now, by the way, the five Ashanti Wars make a great talk, great talk for this uh, meeting. Who is going to volunteer to talk about the Ashanti Wars? Somebody should. Now, the Battle of Amofu was the key battle in the Third Ashanti War. When they got to, <coughs> when the British got to Kumasi after this war, they proceeded to loot it and burn down the impressive royal palace. 
and they were surprised to find in it a library with quotes, rows of books in many languages. The king, the Santaheni, was forced to sign a very one-sided treaty, not only accepting his client status, but also agreeing to pay the British 50,000 ounces of gold to, to pay for British expenses during the war. The idea of reparations, of course, continued into the First World War with dire consequences. The treaty also demanded that the British trade between Kumasi and the coast and other parts of the Gold Coast should be unhindered, i.e. no more irksome border taxes, which was one of the sources of income for the Ashanti. Now, Wolsey, just as a step to one side, Wolsey featured in many of the main imperial campaigns, including Crimea, the Indian Mutiny, the Meti Rebellion in Canada, the Zulu Wars, etc. His career ended when he was blamed, rather unfairly, for the Black Week, November 1999, during the Boer War. It wasn't really his responsibility. Well, no, he was responsible, but not to blame, if you see what I mean. But he was sacked, and perhaps another reason why he was sacked, he was, I quote, icy, arrogant, ruthless, and self-seeking. He was also the model for Gilbert and Sullivan's The Modern Major General. The Fourth Ashanti War, after some peace, this is the, the third one, um, the 1873, there was 20 years of peace, and then the relationship between the Ashanti and Britain changed from the Ashanti being pretty much a partner, trading partner, okay, a junior one, but it, they, were, they were not under the British control, gradually became a British-controlled protectorate. They were offered protectorate status in 1894, but refused it. They sent a delegation to London with a number of trading concessions covering gold, cocoa, and rubber, the three main things they exported. So they were kind of giving in trade-wise, but not politically-wise. But the British were keen to keep the French and the Germans out of Ashanti territory and had already decided on a military solution. The army moved in at about the same time as the delegation arrived back from London. So the troops were a substantial force of 2,000 men, one group of which was led by, guess who, Baden-Powell. The king, the Asantehene, told his people not to resist because the outcome was inevitable. Not a shot was fired, but 18 Europeans died, including Queen Victoria's son-in-law, Henry of Battenberg. At least 50% of the troops were sick with fevers, and many of them died. The king was again forced to sign another treaty, handing power to a British governor who arrived in mid-1896. There was now a protectorate. The Asantehene refused to hand over the gold, perhaps because he didn't have any. So he was arrested, deposed, and sent to the Seychelles. Now, the, it, it's, it, it is only of interest to historians of the colonial period. There's a sphere of influence. There are trade treaties, which kind of combine with trade treaties. Then there is a protectorate when you send your political advisor to advise, which is the big story in India and places like northern Nigeria. And then, then there's a colony when you're run by the British. And the colonies can be indirect and direct rule, but that's another complication. So by the time of the scramble for Africa, everybody had enclaves around the coast of Africa, everybody, the British, the Portuguese, the French, the Germans, and traded inland and made trade treaties with the people. And only because of the scramble for Africa did these turn into actual colonies. A story that will be addressed in greater detail at a later talk during the Africa theme. So, the British now control what is now Ghana. The next war, these are all wars I'm talking about, and I got a note here saying a bit of light relief. Not exactly light relief. But the Anglo-Zanzibari War is famous in the history books for being the shortest war on record, 
lasting between 35 and 45 minutes. <laughs> the Sultanate of Zanzibar had, since the Treaty of 1886, which was a, a, a treaty, an agreement that they would basically come under the British sphere of influence and would do what the British told them, not anybody else, they had agreed to get British approval when any new sultan was announced. However, in August 1896, they appointed one who was not thought to be sufficiently pro-British. The British sent an ultimatum, which the sultan ignored. He then barricaded himself with his substantial palace guard and loyal supporters inside his palace, which, for those of you who have been to Zanzibar, I'm sure will know, is on the shorefront. Meanwhile, the British had sent a squadron from Cape Town to deal with this upstart led by Admiral Harry Rawson who was a leader of another invasion shortly. Shelling started just after 9 a.m. on the 27th. It disabled the Sultan's artillery and sank the, royal, the Zanzibari royal yacht, rather bizarrely named HMS Glasgow, <laughs> and two smaller vessels. It set the palace on fire and caused mayhem in the Sultan's harem. Shelling stopped at 9.40 and the Sultan surrendered. So. British order, i.e., which was indirect control, British order was now restored. End of the Anglo-Zanzibari War. They still talk about it in Zanzibar even today. The next one is more significant, really, the Anglo-Benin War, which was a punitive expedition, a much more serious encounter. Britain controlled Lagos and it controlled the oil rivers, i.e., the Nigeria Delta, but did not control the rich forest between the two. This was extensive and very, the very powerful kingdom of Benin, with whom the Portuguese had been trading for 400 years, but trading. However, the Treaty of Berlin, as I've said, forced a change in the European relationship with Africa. Many European countries had these enclaves, but the treaties demanded they should have a significant presence, boots on the ground, before they could be called part of the British or the French or the Portuguese Empire. Spheres of influence was not enough. The British preferred client states to independent ones. Richard Burton visited in 1862 and reported on the gratuitous barbarity of the regime and said the town stank of death. Now this was one of the reasons why the British were doing the honorable thing by invading and taking over Benin. But the trouble is you can find an equivalent story in almost every colonial war. Whether it was particularly barbarous, whether it did stink of death is not the point. It may have done, but it was a, a reason for going in and liberating them. In 1899-92, a consul from the Oil Rivers visited Benin, signed a treaty with Benin, which the other had no intention whatsoever of following. He'd been a head of a kingdom that had lasted 400 years. Why would he bother? But this did cut British traders' profits. And then in 1896, he closed the border so that Vice Consul Phillips from the Oil Rivers decided to take a small group of soldiers to Benin disguised as traders, porters, and as a pipe and drum band. They carried their weapons hidden, not openly. Now, the, the true purpose of the expedition was, of course, known to a number of African traders and merchants who told the Oba, so this force was intercepted and massacred. And in the newspapers, the Niger massacre was hot news. And a a number of people on HMS Malacca, was another colonial port, were sent to the punitive expedition dispatched against the perpetration of the massacre of the Niger expedition. So, off goes another expedition led by Admiral Harry Rawson, who had just come back from Zanzibar. 
An invasion began in 1897 with experienced soldiers and marines. They burnt down a few villages on the way. The number of fierce engagements which they didn't all win because Benin, as a kingdom, had had a, its own army. But they did invade successfully, and after 10 days, they got there and took over the city. And they found all these amazing things in Benin. They looted and burnt down most of the capital, including religious sites and the main palaces, and took 2,500 artifacts and whatever gold and ivory they could find. The Oba was sent into exile. And this is the Oba of the time and his regalia, and here is the British soldiers looking at the loot inside a roofless, roofless palace. The loot, of course, was the famous Benin bronzes. Um, that is probably Queen Idia, and that is an Oba. And these are the bronzes of Benin, about which many of you have heard. And they were um, amazed to discover these things. First time they'd really taken notice of them. Anybody in the West really known they existed. And there is the famous Queen Mother Idia, uh, an ivory mask. What's interesting, this is made of ivory, that used to have two metal inserts, but the metal has rotted. The ivory hasn't. Um, they also took 900 wall plaques. And the wall plaques were a pictorial history, a picture gallery of the kingdom and the royal family going way back hundreds of years. And there's an example of the um, picture gallery, one of the plaques. And this is the famous rope dance. The soldiers here, you can see the ropes. These are thin plaques made from the lost wax process uh, by artists going back hundreds of years from Ife and Benin. And they're, 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 the ropes are enabled to, to design to fly through the air. Why are they flying through the air? To appease the irises which were there. Why are they wishing to appease the irises? Because the irises had warned against a war, against people coming like the, like the swans, ducks, whatever, gates of Rome. They warned about approaching an army and had been ignored had been taken over, so now they had felt they had to appease the ibises by doing a rope dance. This is on a wall plaque. Some of these were taken by the officers as souvenirs, but many were sold to pay for the expedition. Another recurring theme. The British Museum and the Pitt Rivers in Oxford were the main beneficiary, as were a number of museums in Germany. If any of you have ever been to the Pitt Rivers, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful jumble. In fact, it's been reorganized. It's a less of a jumble in some ways less interesting, but it's a wonderful museum of these sorts of things. So Benin was now under the control of the British, therefore so was the whole of the southern part of Nigeria. The fact that the bronzes made artists in Europe reappraise their ideas about the dark continent in the cultural sense does not really make up for the fact that the tradition of Benin bronzes came to an abrupt halt. So back to Ghana. The Fifth War, the very title of the Fifth War, makes it plain that they were not delighted to be put under British authority and that it was not always easy for the British to exert their control. So despite Britain being by far the most powerful country in the world, it was possible even for relatively minor kingdoms to resist for many years, partly because they did fight back and were at, at home, and usually because also we underestimate them. We thought, well, they're just savages, what do they know? And some of them were very good soldiers. The Fifth War is referred to as the War of the Golden Stool, and it was more of a revolt than a war. It was caused by British insensitivity and was entirely unnecessary. The stool was, still is, the royal throne and was sacred to the Ashanti. The British governor insisted that he should have it to sit on during official events. 
And the Ashanti were outraged by this and attacked the soldiers sent to retrieve it. The Ashanti troops then blockaded the governor, his staff, and their Hausa, Hausa from Nigeria, guards into a stockade. Some escaped and were rescued, but then a, a large relief force marched up to uh, rescue them just in time. They were running out of water and everything else. But during this engagement, the British and their local allies lost 1,000 men, probably mostly to disease. 2,000 Ashanti died by being kind of punished. However, the British were now in control. The Ashanti became part of the Gold Coast colony, and another part of the jigsaw, the scramble for Africa, was in place. The, um, m most of the rest of the rebellious royal family was sent to the Seychelles. However, the, the, Griti the British agreed not to dishonor the stool again, this was perhaps a draw, but what a waste of time and money and lives. Now, these relatively minor wars, I say not for the Africans involved, do illustrate the British willingness to engineer a confrontation. Partly, they couldn't really understand why people would not wish to be under the protection of the British Navy. Uh, why, why would you not wish to be British? Partly, of course, the Navy had no competition, so sending a gunboat, or in the case of three cruisers, to Zanzibar, meant that the outcome was inevitable. But forces on the ground who were determined, well-armed, and had local knowledge, like both the Boer and the Ashanti, the outcome was less speedy and a great deal more expensive in every sense of the word. Now, so the, a dozen minor wars in the last decade of the 19th century fought by all the major colonial powers against the various kingdoms and tribal groups in Africa. There were peace treaties and trade agreements which were acceptable, but Direct and generally insensitive control was less acceptable. There were some, like the Basutu and the Swana, who actually wanted to be protectorates because they preferred the British to the Boers. Some were bullied and bribed into submission. Some, like the Zanzibaris, were given a bloody nose and brought to heel. And some, like the Herero in Namibia, were massacred. Uh, another story. So the, the final point, at the beginning of the scramble for Africa, 1885-plus, Perhaps 10% of the land mass of Africa was controlled by foreigners, some in the north, South Africa, and a few enclaves. By 1905, 20 years later or less, 90% of Africa was controlled by Europeans. But that, as they say, is another story. Thank you. The views expressed by the speaker are not necessarily the same as those held by the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. This podcast is published by the Mr. T Podcast Studio.